DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Jane Austen is arguably the finest female novelist who ever lived, and Pride and Prejudice is arguably the finest, and is certainly the most popular of her novels. An undoubted classic of world literature, its profound Christian morality is all too often missed and willfully overlooked by today's postmodern critics. In all things, Jane Austen was a woman of faith. Perhaps nowhere is this more apparent than in Mansfield Park, her most neglected, abused, and misunderstood novel. Like Austen's other novels, it can be fully appreciated when only illuminated by the virtuous life and Christian beliefs of the author herself. Jane Austen saw the follies and foibles of human nature and the frictions and fidelities of family life with an incisive eye that penetrates to the very heart of the human condition. We now begin our discussion of Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, and Mansfield Park. Jane Austen and the Ignatius Critical Editions have given us not just one of her wonderful writings, but two. Yes, we published uh, Pride and Prejudice and Mansfield Park already, and Sense and Sensibility is going to be included in the next call for papers. So we have a third planned. And obviously, Jane Austen is such an important author that we intend to do all of her novels. And yes, what I find very encouraging about Jane Austen is the fact that she's now almost 200 years since she died. And she seems to be as relevant and as popular as ever. It reminds me actually very much, in some ways, of C.S. Lewis, uh, paradoxically, because C.S. Lewis didn't believe that his books would sell after his death. He thought he would, you know, he'd had his moment in, in his own life, and then he would sort of fade. And now what we see with C.S. Lewis is actually a C.S. Lewis industry. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing with Jane Austen. She was unknown in her own lifetime. Her works were published under a pseudonym. So no one knew who Jane Austen was. And when she died, she, you know, it's a moment of passing, transient fame as writing a, you know, a handful of novels. And now, 200 years after her death, we have what, again, is best described as a Jane Austen industry. Now, for better or for worse, because the trouble with that, of course, is there's lots of nonsense spoken about Jane Austen, although we have to ultimately rejoice that so many people are still reading her work. What is it about the feminist agenda that wants to lay claim to these women? Well, Jane Austen is such an intelligent woman. She's someone who quite clearly has an intellect, which is the equal of any man of her generation, any man of the 19th century, as far as I can see. And of course, that the feminists, they would want to claim her as one of their own. But in actual fact, what we see in Jane Austen is one who's, again, profoundly Christian and profoundly grounded 
in Christian philosophy and what philosophers would call realism. In other words, that there's a reality to the metaphysics underpinning the cosmos. It's not merely about relativism or accidents. So we find in her work a profound engagement with the modernity and relativism and progressive scientism of her age, but from the perspective of a profoundly traditional mind and imagination. So they want to claim her because she's quite clearly a genius, not just artistically, but rationally uh, in terms of her intellect. So, of course, if you have a giant or a giantess, if you prefer, you'd want to claim them as your own. But she actually is profoundly anti-feminist, if by feminist we mean the progressive, divisive, anti-masculine feminism of the 21st century. Yeah, there's something quite wonderful about a Jane Austen novel. And of course, I'm thinking in particular of Pride and Prejudice, along with all of them. But she has this great love of family and of the person, even if they're nasty people. She allows them the dignity of being whole, even when they're not pleasant, like Lady Catherine. She loves people. And I think that that love of people, genuine love of people, comes through the novels. And therefore, she doesn't patronize. She doesn't, she's not cynical in her attitude towards anybody. She shows the consequences of rash actions and the immoral actions. But she doesn't behave in a patronizing or supercilious way towards another person. Because I think she, as a Christian, uh, accepts their dignity as a human person. And the tragedy is the fact they have that dignity. That's the whole point. If you could just look at someone as being subhuman because they were different from you, there'd be no tragedy in their doubt. I think we feel the tragedy and the downfall of Jane Austen's characters because of the dignity that they possess, because of her love for them, because each of those, although they're subcreated by her in her imagination, are human beings, and she has a profound respect for humanity. Her family was an important influence on Jane Austen. I mean, she grew up in a quite a, a loving and nurturing group. Yeah, and we know that she had a, a good, solid family. We discussed that the... the Maelstrom, which was a consequence of Mary Shelley's poor upbringing. But we looked at Emily Bronte's healthy upbringing and what that led to, and we, we see even more so in Jane Austen, one whose family was profoundly Christian, profoundly united. Her father was a great encourager that Lewis called Tolkien the great encourager and said that if it wasn't for C.S. Lewis, he would never have finished The Lord of the Rings because Lewis was the great encourager. Well, in Jane Austen's life, her father was the great encourager that encouraged her to do the writing, and then once these novels were finished, even though in the case of you know, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, she was merely a girl still. I mean, she was uh, in her, I think, early 20s when she wrote those books. It was him that sent those manuscripts to the publishers, so he that sort of oversaw their publication. So I think having this supportive home life, this supportive family life was clearly a crucial element in Jane Austen bringing those works to fruition, that without that, you know, we may never have seen them, uh, and they certainly wouldn't be the sort of books that they are. And this is another myth, by the way, that needs nailing, because one of the things that the modernity tries to say is that great works of literature only come through some sort of trauma in one's private mm-hmm. life or one's life, and it's this conflict, this anger, this negativity. And although that's certainly true with some works of literature, we can certainly see that, you know, that many of the great works of literature were written by people who enjoyed the security of a good and solid home life. I think it was pointed out in the critical edition of Pride and Prejudice that the Austen family would actually gather together and they would write these stories. And as she wrote this one in particular, it would be read aloud to the family. I mean, every night, and they would sit and comment and offer feedback. I mean, it was born out of this 
wonderful love of this community. The familial communitas, the actual community of the family, mm. yeah. It is a great tribute to Christianity, to the Christian family, to that moral unity that we can get from that, as opposed to uh, the conflicted view of reality, which we get if our, our parents are abusive or our parents have a philosophy which is counter to reality. I'm going to say, we think again of Mary Shelley, but Jane Austen is the complete opposite. It's uh, conformity to the moral norms of Christian family life that produce these works of profound beauty and uh, profound wisdom and profound morality that are as relevant today in the morality that they expound, as opposed to perhaps the, the accidents. I mean, we don't have gentry in the, in the way we did in those days, but, but the actual questions, the moral questions, the ethical dilemmas are unchanged. And that's the main reason, of course, that she's so popular, is that we can see the choices that her characters have to make as choices which we and people we know have to make in order to prosper or, or otherwise in, in the lives we live. Her time would be a generation or two before Shelley, before Bronte. She's certainly earlier than Emily Bronte. Emily Bronte's Wuthering published in 1937. That's five years after Queen Victoria comes to the throne. But Mary Shelley's writing Frankenstein in 1816, which is a year before Jane Austen dies. But it is absolutely true that Jane Austen's novels were written earlier than that. In the case of the early ones, I think, before the end of the 18th century. So it's the Regency period, what it's okay. called uh, in, in English history, because of the, the madness of King George. The, the monarchy de facto is being in the hands of the Prince Regent. It is important to keep that in context, because help me to understand, as a female writer, is she one of the first to be so popularized with so many others? I mean, becoming so well-known even if it's after her death. We have to realize that when Jane Austen is writing, it's in the infancy of the novel anyway. The novel as a genre really doesn't come into its own until the 18th century anyway, and towards the end of the 18th century. So she's in the vanguard of the first great wave of novelists. There's some minor waves before it, but the first great wave. And yes, and one of the wonderful things about Jane Austen is that she was writing at the beginning of what is probably the golden age of English literature, I mean, the Victorian period. And when you look back from the end of the 19th century at who are the great figures of the 19th century, there's no doubt at all that, that Jane Austen's up there, so are the Bronte sisters. There's a female voice, a feminine voice in English literature, which is profoundly important, but again, profoundly non-feminist and profoundly anti-feminist, in fact. For Austen, the development of character is very, very important. And I'm not necessarily talking about the individual a literary character. I'm talking about the actual moral character. Again, going back to Pride and Prejudice, which is so compelling because Lizzie falls not head over heels at first sight, second sight, or third sight. It would be from the understanding of Darcy's character that she actually begins to mature in love for him. Well, natural fact, you know, one thing I love about um, those two early novels of Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, is much of the morality, much of the moral meaning and the integrity of the work is to be found in the title. Uh, in Pride and Prejudice, the whole point is that Lizzie is blind to the true characteristics of the character she's encountering in the early parts of the novel because of her prejudice. So she doesn't recognize who Darcy really is. Whereas later in the novel, and that pride and prejudice is overcome, we begin to see reality. So we sort of understand that pride, of course, which is the father of all sins, the sin that makes us justify all the others, pride leads to prejudice, and that actually is a barrier to perception. So she's very profoundly philosophical, even when dealing with love and marriage. 
and the same with sense and sensibility that the, the whole thrust of, of, of that novel is between sense which is reason ratio and sensibility which is feeling what which do we follow you know if they in conflict if, if the two become in conflict if feeling becomes in conflict with our reason which path do we follow and this of course is an engagement with the, with the romanticism of her own age which was beginning to say that it really the, romanticism was a reaction against the materialism of the enlightenment which taught that it's all about reason to the exclusion mm-hmm. of faith or feeling and romanticism reacts against that and says no your so-called reason your rationalism is so cold it's dead and deadly therefore it's all about feeling now and what Jane Austen is doing is saying no let's let's get back to some common sense here which is neither a faithless reason or an irrational faith but what the church calls fides et ratio faith and reason so sense is reason sense is never contradicted by faith but faith and reason actually go together. And indeed, our feelings, our sensibility, can lead us astray and do lead us astray. So we see that even in the titles of the books, we have the clue or the key to the, the morality of Jane Austen. But, but her morality is very, very connected and wedded to philosophy. She's a giant of the intellect. She's not just a giant of the heart. With her writing, there is a real striving for kindness as well. When she writes, it's never in a belittling fashion, which some of the authors of her time, I mean, there were satirical and belittling and that type of things. But Jane Austen is always trying to elevate to a higher standard for even the reader to attain. Yeah, her novels tended to be edifying. They're meant to build us up to actually make us better people by the end of it, when we started reading. I mean, in that sense, they're profoundly works of moral apologetics, except, of course, that she doesn't fall into the trap of didacticism. She's not obviously teaching a lesson. She's giving us an example, and there's a difference. Mm-hmm. She just shows us, you know, this is what happens if we behave in certain ways, certain things happen, and there are consequences to our actions. And also there are consequences to false philosophy, to seeing reality through false-coloured glasses, whether it be rose-coloured spectacles or, or something which is so cynical that we don't see the reality. So pride, prejudice. Philosophy has consequences. Ideas have consequences. Actions have consequences. In the lives of characters and their interactions with each other, show us those consequences, edifying consequences for solid philosophy and solid virtue and destructive consequences for those people who act without virtue or informed by an erroneous, uh, destructive philosophy. For a generation or two, maybe, at least during my lifetime, Jane Austen was considered essentially a girl's writer, unfortunately, placed in a shelf or a genre that young girls should just read Jane Austen, but she's not for the mature adult, especially not the mature adult male. You being one, of course. What would you say to that? Well, I think that's a prejudice, uh, <laughs> there you, <go. laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think it's prejudice connected to pride, ironically enough. And I think it's probably true that to a large degree that many men don't read Jane Austen because they think that she's for girls. I keep coming back to Tolkien. You have to forgive me for this because mm-hmm. it's points of reference. I've just been teaching the Lord of the Rings at, at Ave Maria University that someone dismissed the Lord of the Rings when it was voted as the greatest work of the 20th century. Oh, that's just for adolescent boys, isn't it? And then a feminist writer, Jermaine Greer, said that it was her idea of her worst nightmare when she saw a tribe of full-grown women wearing puffed sleeves 
babbling on excitedly about hobbits. In other words, that this, the, these prejudices are not true of great literature. And if any man is not reading Jane Austen because they think that it's for girls, then I don't understand the magnitude of the work of these masterpieces. Now, of course, most of the characters are female, and most of the perspective is the female perspective. But you know something, it would do men a great deal of good sometimes to start looking at life through that female perspective, especially when it's in the voice of someone as huge intellectually. Jane Austen is the equal to anybody who's going to read her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> More than the equal to anybody's going to read her. So there's nothing to do when you're reading Jane Austen, except to, again, be silent and to grow in her presence. She's a master of dialogue. Just reading her, it, you feel you're the third person in the conversation. Absolutely. But what I love about it is she's the master of dialogue, but it's, she's master of dialogue nonetheless in well-structured, even intricately structured sentences. In order to be a master of dialogue, you don't have to dumb down into monosyllabic, terse lines. Of course, it may say something to the way that people were more eloquent, had a better grasp of the language in the early 19th century. But yes, the spoken word, the dialogue in her novels are completely natural. It's not the author's voice. She's managed to get into the the character saying them. The syntax is the way it would be used if the word was spoken as opposed to written. So she's got an absolute grasp of that. But without the modern understanding of that being to reduce dialogue to an endless stream of monosyllabic grunts. (laughs) (laughs) that's right when you look at Jane Austen particularly for example the book Pride and Prejudice which we've spoken probably the most about because probably more people are familiar with that particular book it isn't just the female characters Darcy is a significant I mean everything turns on him really yes Lizzie has her awareness but it isn't until he becomes aware of his failings that is conversion yeah no i agree what it shows is that jane austen as as a great writer is perfectly able to empathize with with every character in her book what i was trying to say was nonetheless that the overall perspective is a feminine one Mm -hmm. and that most of the key characters are female but yeah she's not working in two dimensions absolutely or indeed in one sex pride and prejudice by jane austen chapter 60 Elizabeth's spirit soon rising to playfulness again, she wanted Mr. Darcy to account for his having ever fallen in love with her. "'How could you begin?' said she. "'I can comprehend your going on charmingly when once you had made a beginning, but what could set you off in the first place?' "'I cannot fix on the hour, or the spot, or the look, or the words which laid the foundation. It is too long ago. I was in the middle before I knew that I had begun.' My beauty you had early withstood, and as for my manners, my behaviour to you was at least always bordering on the uncivil, and I never spoke to you without rather wishing to give you pain than not. Now be sincere. Did you admire me for my impertinence? For the liveliness of your mind, I did. You may as well call it impertinence at once. It was very little less. The fact is that you were sick of civility, of deference, of officious attention. You were disgusted with the women who were always speaking and looking and thinking for your approbation alone. I roused and interested you because I was so unlike them. Had you not been really amiable, you would have hated me for it. But in spite of the pains you took to disguise yourself, your feelings were always noble and just, and in your heart you thoroughly despised the persons who so assiduously courted you. There, 
I have saved you the trouble of accounting for it. And really, all things considered, I begin to think it perfectly reasonable. To be sure, you knew no actual good of me, but nobody thinks of that when they fall in love." What would her influence be, would you say, Jane Austen, on the generations that would come as far as writers, especially in England? Well, as regards um, the 19th century, actually, not probably as great as we might have thought, because she was popular and she had her champions. But for the most part, she didn't become the, the force that she is today until the 20th century. And again, that's the real mark of greatness. If a hundred years after you're dead, people are, are seeing that you have profound things to say. But as regards the future, I think that her position is secure just because of the genius that we're talking about with Jane Austen. But I also think her influence on the culture will continue to be uh, a very positive one. I think that there will be ongoing efforts, as, the, as there are with people such as Shakespeare, to manipulate her works to mean what people want them to mean by leaving things out and by accentuating things or making things that she criticizes positive, what have you. This vandalism, which, which seems so prevalent today. But nonetheless, the truth shines through. And uh, even if these bad films lead people to go and read the books, then they're going to be leading people to, in the right direction. So I think Jane Austen is a force for Christian ethics, Christian morality, and just for great art and great English is assured. That's, again, what's unfortunate about the making of many of the literary works, including Jane Austen, into movies, only because they are so rich and they are so full that it can't possibly be done in 180 minutes to be able to communicate at best, if you even have that long. And they'll pull certain parts of it. We've discussed this before, but they'll pull certain elements out of it and not give the totality of what that person's trying to communicate. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I always uh, use the, the British TV production of Bright Head Revisited as, as the example of how you can actually do a good job of adaptation. Mm -hmm. But I can't remember how long that is, but it's something like 10 or 11 hours mm -hmm. for a novel that's not particularly long. I mean, it's fewer than 300 pages long. So it's very expensive. That's the first thing. Very expensive to try to do justice to a book. Peter Jackson had a, uh, a manful effort with The Lord of the Rings. I mean, I do actually think that the, the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice is quite good. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was at least six parts. I mean, that was right. six or seven hours. E exactly. So we get the same point here that in order to do, even an endeavor to do justice to a great work of literature, you have to be prepared to spend a lot of money. There has to be a high budget. And we need to make that distinction because I think that, that we should... Uh, I'm not saying boycott or refuse to watch adaptations of literature that are merely, you know, two or three hours long. But we should know in advance that it's going to do uh, an injustice to the work and expect it. And speaking personally, I just don't bother to watch them. <laughs> I have to wonder, uh, Jane Austen, if she were transplanted from her era to this era, would she see a markedly different world? Uh, uh, yes, on the, on the surface it would be, of course, different, but in the depths of the human heart and what she would experience, would she see familiarity? I sometimes sort of uh, use an example of the chronological snobbery of the modern age, which presumes that the past is inferior to the present. And I use the example, you know, if Plato were to arrive in this classroom, if I'm speaking to my students, 
know, we'd all laugh at him because he'd be wearing sort of, you know, ancient Greek clothes. And then we'd laugh at him again when he looked at a car and it couldn't work out whereabouts the horse fit at the front. And then you put him in the car, he had no idea how to drive it. And we'd all think how stupid he was. But all of these little things about modernity, he could learn within a week. He learned mm-hmm. that, you know, the car had an internal combustion engine and this is how you drive it. And then after about two weeks, he'd start asking us questions that make us look really stupid and would realize in actual fact that for all our gadgets, for all our toys, we actually uh, are at least as dumb as uh, people of his own time. And I think that's exactly the same thing would happen to Jane Austen if she were to be transported to her own time 200 years on. She would, first of all, be astonished, of course, by all the trappings. But the trappings are, as philosophers would say, accidental. You know, the mm-hmm. essentials of human nature are unchanging and it's those essentials that she would understand fully and see that no nothing's changed it's the same miserable mistakes and it's the same edifying virtues that lift society out of the gutter she would understand all that far better than we do were she to be transported today that's what she would be saying to us but of course with great literature that is what she's saying to us because every time we read her books she is being transported 200 years she is speaking to our culture and she's still making a great deal of sense i think that's why she's so relevant for today and why it's so wonderful that the ignatius critical editions are bringing about three of her works to the forefront because it does talk about character development. And at its very heart, we can talk about all kinds of other issues, but it goes down to the human person and the decisions that we make and the judgments we make. One of the things that's characteristic of Jane Austen is the fact that she doesn't talk about the momentous historical events of her day. I mean, she's living at the time of the Napoleonic Wars. Britain's at war with France. She lived through the Battle of Trafalgar, probably the most important naval battle in British history. She lived through the Battle of Waterloo, that crucially important battle that brought down the downfall of Napoleon. She was living in the Enlightenment. She was living at the time of the Industrial Revolution with major political and demographic changes. And yet she chooses to write about genteel country life for the most part, even in the city, it's genteel city life. And that's because she's not concerned with all of these passing things. The Battle of Waterloo is big at the time. You know, 100 years later, it's history. But the relationship between people is never history because Mm -hmm. people are essentially unchanging. So Jane Austen was interested in the things that are unchanging and therefore the things that are timeless. And that's why she's so enduring. And that's why 200 years after her death, we can still read her not only with enjoyment, but with edification and with a great deal of benefit to our education. That foundational Christian rootedness that she has, it does transcend time. Because after you're finished reading an Austen novel, you feel like you've been transformed. You see something you didn't see before, but you also know how you want to act in a situation. Absolutely. And the the one thing which is wonderful about Jane Austen is that virtue is transparent. In other words, you see the characters acting virtuously, and whether you like it or not, you can't help liking them for being virtuous or even agreeing with them for being virtuous. So if you have a cynical outlook, ultimately you can't read Jane Austen. And if you do read Jane Austen with a cynical outlook, your outlooks can become less and less cynical with every page you read. Mm, Beautiful. Well, I suggest that people go out and get the Ignatius Critical Editions and, and do read Jane Austen. And that applies to the men as well. Very good. Thank you, Joseph Pierce. <laughs> You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, 
visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.